So last class we discussed about the main points in the essay, uh, the language of paradox, uh, written by Cleon Brooks in 1956. Uh, this is how we will just go through the essay. So he begins by essay that few of us are prepared to accept the statement that language of poetry is the language of paradox. And paradox is the language of sophistry, hard, bright, witty. It is hardly the language of the soul. We are willing to allow that paradox is a permissible weapon which a Chesterton may on occasion exploit. We may permit it in epigram, a special subvariety of poetry, and in satire, which though useful, we are hardly willing to allow it to be poetry at all. Our prejudices force us to regard paradox as intellectual rather than emotional, clever rather than profound, rational rather than divinely rational. So in the he begins his essay by stating that language of poetry is the language of paradox and paradox is the language of sophistry, hard, bright, witty and it is hardly the language of the soul. So uh, he is again uh, saying that our prejudices made us feel that paradox is intellectual, clever and rational. Next paragraph, here there is a sense in which paradox is language appropriate and inevitable to poetry. It is the scientist whose truth requires a language forged of favorite race of paradox. Apparently, the truth which the poet utters can be approached only in terms of paradox. So, I overstate the case. To be sure, it is possible that uh, the title of this chapter is itself to be treated as merely a paradox. Uh, but there are reasons for thinking that the overstatement which I propose may light up some elements in the nature of poetry which tend to be overlooked. So first uh, he says that language of poetry is the language of paradox and it is sophistry, hard, bright, witty uh, and hardly the language of the soul and also paradox is considered as intellectual, clever and rational. Again he says that paradox is the language appropriate and inevitable to poetry. It is a scientist who, whose, uh, whose truth requires a language. That is uh, in, uh, in, uh, the difference between science and poetry. So, uh, science, it is uh, proven. It is proven. Scientifically proven. The truth is proven. But uh, poetry is not like that. And uh, in this essay, he is examining some of the major poets. William Wordsworth, Alexander Pope, John Donne, Shakespeare. So, beginning with Wordsworth, he says that uh, his poetry would not appear to promise many examples of the language of the paradox. And uh, he usually prefers the direct attack. And he insists on simplicity and he distrusts uh, whatever seems soft, sophistical. So his example given here is uh, the poem written by Wordsworth. It's a beauteous evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as none, breathless and adoration. So he's saying, uh, author is saying that the poet is filled with worship, uh, but the girl who walks beside him is not worshipping. And she should respond to the holy time and become like the evening itself, none like. But she seems less worshipful than in nature, inanimate nature itself. So, here Brooks saying that the underlying paradox is uh, nevertheless thoroughly necessary even for that uh, reader. So,
so he asked uh, he asked why does the innocent girl worship more deeply than the self conscious poet who walks beside her because uh, she is filled with an unconscious sympathy for all nature not merely the grandiose and solemn and uh, continuing one remembers the lines from words sort friend coleridge he prayeth best who loveth best all things both great and small so her conscious sympathy is the unconscious worship he, she is in communion with nature all the year and her devotion is continual whereas uh, that of the poet is podiac and momentary so it not only underlies the poem but something of the paradox informs the poem the calm of the evening obviously means worship even to the dull witted and insensitive it corresponds to the trappings of the nun visible to everyone so again he is giving uh, one of the sonnets of shakespeare namely composed upon westminster bridge so she is saying that um, it is one of the most successful poems of wordsworth composed upon westminster bridge uh, the attempt to account for it on the grounds of nobility of sentiment soon breaks down so on this level uh, the poem says that the city in the morning light presents a picture which is majestic and touching to all but the most dull of soul so the attempt to make a case for the poem in terms of the brilliance of its images also quickly breaks down the student searches for graphic details in vain and they are next to no realistic touches in fact the poet simply huddles the details together that is what uh, brook says then he goes on explaining uh, the lines of uh, wordsworth poem it's a beauteous evening again uh, the river glided at his own sweet will a river is the most natural thing that one can imagine it has the elasticity the lined curve of nature itself so brook says that uh, it is not his intention to exaggerate words or tone consciousness of the paradox involved in this poem he prefers uh, the frontal attack but the situation is paradoxical here as in so many poems in his uh, preface to the second edition of the lyrical ballads wordsworth stated that his general purpose was to choose incidents and situations from common life but uh, so to treat them that ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual aspect so coleridge uh, was to state the purpose for him later in terms uh, which may even more evident words of the exploitation of the paradoxical so wordsworth uh, in short was consciously attempting to show his audience that the common was really uncommon the prosaic was really poetic uh coleridge terms uh, the charm of novelty or uh, to things of everyday 
it awakens the mind and also suggest the, the romantic preoccupation with wonder or the surprise and uh, the revelation which puts the tarnished familiar world in a new light so words are here really present the common as uncommon and color wise also the that is uh, this may well be raised um, in the most romantic paradoxes and yet the neoclassic poets use paradox for much the same reason uh, next he is analyzing pop's lines from the essay of man uh, the lines are these uh, to quote in doubt his mind or body to prefer born but to die and reasoning but to err like in ignorance ignorance his reason such whether he thinks too little or too much so here uh, the paradoxes insist on the irony rather than the wonder uh, but pope too might have claimed that he was treating the things of everyday man himself and awakening his mind so that he would view himself in a new and blinding light so there is of course no reason why they should not occur together and they do so wonder and irony merge in many of the lyrics of blake the merge in coleridge's ancient mariner so the variation in emphasis are numerous grace elegy uses a typical words for the situation with the rural scene and with peasants contemplated in the light of their betters so but the elegy uh, the balance is heavily tilted in the direction of irony the revelation of an ironic rather than a startling one to quote can story dawn or animated burst back to its mansion called the fleeting breath can honor's voice provoke the silent dust or flattery soothe the dull cold ear of death so here uh, brooks says that uh, the connotations he doesn't mean that uh, the connotations are important as supplying some sort of frill or trimming or something eternal external to the real matter in hand and that the poet does not use a notation at all so ts eliot has commented upon court that perpetual slight alteration of language words perpetually juxtaposed in new and sudden combinations which occurs in poetry so it can only be directed and controlled the tendency of science is necessarily to stabilize terms to freeze them into strict notations and the poet's tendency is by contrast disruptive so to take a very simple example consider the adjectives in the first lines of wordsworth evening sonnet that is beauteous calm free holy breathless so uh, these are hardly startling and again he says that the evening is like a nun breathless with adoration so here the adjective breathless suggests tremendous excitement and yet the evening is not only quiet but calm and there is no final contradiction so even if uh, he had a polysyllabic technical term 
the term would not provide uh, the solution for this problem and he must work by contradiction and qualification uh, again brooks says that as ia richards was pointed out uh, that all of the subtler states of emotion demand metaphor for their expression so the poet must work by analogies but the metaphors uh, do not lie in the same plane or fit neatly edge to edge and even the most direct and simple poet is forced into paradoxes far more often than we think if we are sufficiently alive to what he is doing and uh, to use uh, shakespeare's figure uh, he can shakespeare had in mind uh, the game of lawn bowls in which the bowl is distorted a distortion which allows the skillful player to bowl a curve so to elaborate the figure science make use of the perfect sphere and its attack can be direct so the method of art can never be direct it is always indirect but it does not mean that the master of the game cannot place the bowl where he wants it the serious difficulties will only occur when he confuses his game with that of science and mistakes the nature of his appropriate instrument and again brooks says that a uh, simple and straightforward poet is forced into paradoxes by the nature of his instrument and we should not be surprised to find poets who consciously employ paradoxes uh, to gain a compression and precision other than otherwise unobtainable so the method is an extension of the normal language of poetry and not a perversion of it next he is uh, discussing dance canonization that is the basic metaphor which underlies the poem involves a sort of paradox for the poet daringly treats profane love as if it were divine love the canonization is not uh, that of a pair of holy anchorites who have renounced the world and flesh the hermitage of each is the other's body but they do renounce the world and so their title to sainthood is cunningly argued here he refuses to accept the paradox as a serious rhetorical device and since he is able to accept it only as he is forced into this dilemma so the poem will show that uh, dun takes both love and religion seriously and further it shows that the paradox is here a paradox is the inevitable instrument it it requires a closer reading than most of us give to poetry and the poem opens dramatically on a note of exasperation and the you whom the speaker addresses is not identified and dan begins to suggest this metaphor in the first stanza by contemptuous alternatives which he suggests to the friend caught chide my palsy or my gout my five gray hairs or ruined fortune flout 
so the two main categories of secular success are neatly and contemptuously epitomized in the line or the king's recall or his stamped face so that is uh, cultivate the court and gaze at the king's face there or if you prefer get into the business and look at his face stamped on coins so here the conflict between the real world and the lover absorbed in the world of love runs through the poem it dominates the second stanza in which uh, the torments of love affect the real world not at all and in the fourth stanza it is touched uh, between the contrast in the word chronicle which suggests secular history with its pomp and magnificence the history of king and princess and the word sonnets with its suggestions of trivial and precious intricacy so dan accomplishes the modulation of tone by what uh, may be called an analysis of love metaphor and in the second stanza he fills with the conventionalized figures of the petrarchan tradition uh, there is the wind of lovers sighs the flood of flowers tears so the implication is that the poet himself recognizes the absurdity of the petrarchan love metaphors the absurd, the very absurdity of the jargon which lovers are expected to talk makes for his argument and he is analyzing line by line and in the last stanza the theme uh, receives a final complication the lovers in rejecting life actually win to the most intense life the paradox has been hinted at earlier in the phoenix metaphor here it receives a powerful dramatization that is the lovers in becoming hermits uh, but have gained the world in each other now a more intense or more meaningful world so dan is not content to treat the lovers discovery as something which comes to them passively but rather as something which they actively achieve they are like the saints gods athletes so there is a one more factor in developing and sustaining the final effect uh, the poem is an instance of the doctrine which it asserts it is both the assertion and the realization of the assertion uh, the poet has actually before our eyes built within the song the pretty room with which he says the lovers can be content so uh, he says the canonization contains this admirable thesis but it contains a great deal more he might have been as forthright as a later lyricist who wrote we will build a sweet little nest somewhere out in the west and let the rest of the world go by he might have imitated the but more metaphysical lyric which maintains you are the cream in my coffee so the canonization touches on all these observations but it goes beyond them not merely in dignity but in precision
So again he says that the poet could say what uh, the canonization says by paradox. More direct methods may be tempting but all of them enfeeble and distort what is to be said. And the statement then he's uh, Dunn's imagination uh, seems obsessed with the problem of unity, the sense in which the soul is united with God. So frequently, uh, one type of union becomes a metaphor for the other and it may not be too far-fetched to see both as instances of and metaphors for the union which the creative imagination itself effects. So Coleridge has of course given us uh, the classic uh, description of its nature and power. It reveals itself in the balance or reconcilement of opposite or discordant qualities of sameness with difference of the general with the concrete, uh, the idea with the image, the individual with the representative, the sense of novelty and freshness with old and unfamiliar objects. A more than usual state of emotion with more than usual order. It's a court. And Shakespeare in one of his poems has given a description that orderly parallels that of Coleridge. Court. Reason in itself confounded, confounded saw division grow together. So in Shakespeare's poem, reason is uh, in itself confounded at the union of the phoenix and the turtle, but it recovers to admit its own bankruptcy. Caught, love hath reason, reason none, if what parts can so remain. So in the concluding stanza, he says, Having preempted the poem for our own purposes, it may not be too outrageous to go on to make one further observation. The urn to which we are summoned, the urn which holds the ashes of the phoenix, is like the well-wrought urn of Dunn's canonization, which holds the phoenix lover's ashes. It is the poem itself. And one is reminded of still another urn, Keats' Odone Grecian urn, which contained Truth or beauty, or as Shakespeare's urn encloses, beauty, truth and rarity. But there is a sense in which all such well-wrought urn contains the ashes of a phoenix. So the urns are not meant for memorial purpose only, though that often seems to be their chief significance to the professors of literature. The phoenix rises from its ashes or ought to rise, but it will not arise for all our mere sifting and measuring the ashes or testing them for chemical content. So we must be prepared to accept the paradox of the imagination itself, else beauty, truth and rarity remain enclosed in their cinders and we shall end with essential cinders for all our pains.